listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And hey, Rob, it's uh, been a while since I've talked to you. You're, where are you? Jessup, Maryland. On my way to Boston, buddy. Whoa. All right. Well, I guess that's gonna go why. I'm going to go back to my old Fenway Park. Hope to see a couple of Radiohead shows. Maybe see Patty Griffin, see friends, see family. Going to be doing some house sitting and some dog sitting for uh, my sister, my wonderful sister, Cindy. What about you, dude? Up, update us. What's been going on in Seth world? Well, I'll tell you what. For anyone that's listening, if you stick around to the end on our outro, I'll talk about the last week I spent in Jacksonville, Florida at the National Auctioneers Association Conference and Show where I uh, got my benefit auctioneer specialist. I am now a benefit auctioneer specialist. Beautiful. Wonderful. Well done, Seth. Well done. But we should first give some shout-outs to Robert Polay and Polay Clark. Thank you for your support, as always. Osiris. That's right, Osiris. Just OsirisPod.com. Sign up for the newsletter. All kinds of stuff going on this summer. As a matter of fact, RJ and Tom have just started doing, um, on, uh, on Relics' Facebook page, they're doing pre-show and set break things, and I think even post-show commentary yeah they're, live. they're building it out the couch sessions there so there check out that but also go to their youtube page uh, osiris's youtube page and uh you'll be able to p- check out some of the coverage that rob and i did at electric forest we have Corey uh with the with big oh wait actually what what is it <laughs> main squeeze main squeeze well, i'm thinking big something because we got big something coming up next time that's right but yeah Corey with the main squeeze we inter- we have a nice little uh, youtube of us uh Interviewing him. Also, Natalie Kresman is going to be coming out in the next couple days. And uh, so, yeah, definitely check that out. I'm looking forward to this, sharing this interview with our listeners, Seth. Eddie, Eddie is a great guy. Uh, Eddie from New Master Sounds and from Matador. He's outstanding. I, I, I've known him for years. And as you know, Rob, I mean, he does, he's one of my uh, all-stars for uh, all my activity stuff on Jam Cruise. Always one of the first people to jump in and, and be willing to do stuff. And uh, so I've gotten to know him throughout the years, but it's really, really great to sit down with him and to hear more about his story, uh, his influences, and, his, and just his knowledge. He is super, super smart. And I love what he's doing with the, with the Matadors. I mean, of course, we love the new Master Sounds. I mean, 
but it's just a this new project. And I, I mean, yes, I'm a big Kevin Scott fan, bass player, as you all know. Uh, but um, this new project's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing, guys. And we talk about it a good bit in the interview, but it's matadorsoulsounds.com. If you'd like to check it out, they've just done Europe. They did a ton of stuff in Spain. And you folks in Colorado or you people who travel to Colorado, they're doing a bunch of dates there in late September. Of course, newmastersounds.com for new master sounds dates. There's not too much going on now, but I'm sure, sure they have some stuff coming up. And great vibes to Pete Shand, their bassist. And we talk about that in the interview as well. It's just, it's just indicative of how the new master sounds have moved people as you hear planes flying in the background landing at Dulles airport as I speak, uh, in case you're wondering. I don't think anyone's wondering, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) But people really stepped up as you hear in this interview. It's a really touching thing when they they needed money. The situation changed such that they suddenly, they needed an influx of money very desperately or this, he might not have been able to have a surgery and the fans stepped up in a big, big way. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, on that note, too, we uh, speaking of stepping up, we stepped up a bunch of stairs to be able to record this interview over at Terminal West, the same location where we uh, recorded with Adam Deitch. Uh, Terminal West has been – it's a great venue, but, hey, thank you guys so much for making us so at home uh, whenever we record there. And it was fun getting to watch some sound check and work stuff out with Jonathan Lloyd and with Lamar Williams Jr. that they would do later on. And uh, it was just uh, – again, I believe we talked about Lamar in this interview as well, but, uh, you know – He's buddies with them now. This was toward the beginning of the relationship, but they're going to start doing more and more stuff together. And Jonathan Lloyd, Seth, you know Jonathan. Tell them about Jonathan Lloyd. Jonathan is a trombone player who's uh, been out there in the scene for several years uh, and really connected with the new Master Sounds back at Bear Creek. And it's amazing to see how that relationship has flourished since that time. Uh, Jonathan is uh, definitely one of the um, one of the one of the musicians that really make Atlanta Atlanta home. You know what I mean? But um, He's he's great, and it's just awesome to see that every time every time the uh, new master sound comes through town, they give him a holler, and if he's in town, he sits in with them. It's great. Well, no need to hesitate. Shall we move on and uh, chat with Eddie? Yeah, hope you all enjoy and uh, give us your feedback. Actually, do us a favor if you enjoy the show and you've listened to more episodes uh, than just this one. Press pause. Go over to iTunes. And uh, give us a nice little rating there. We're trying to boost up our ratings. Uh, the more people uh, say they like us on there, the more likely people are to hear it. So thank you for doing that. We're getting positive reviews. We're just not getting enough of them. So if we could, if you could step up, if you listen to the show, you know, it's not like we're getting a windfall of money here, you know, but any little support uh, in any kind of way is definitely very much appreciated. And um, we really appreciate you listening. All right. So. Enjoy, folks. Here you go. Eddie Roberts!
guy coffee and then he just turns into a moron. Are you ready? So we're sitting back here with a founding member of New Master Sounds, as well as many other bands, including Matador, mm-hmm. Mr. Eddie Roberts. Hello. Hello, hello. And I mentioned Matador because it is a new and exciting project with uh, Alan Evans of Soul Live. Mm-hmm. And also it comes out of Seth's... Um, Big area of jam cruise because you, you and Alan initially, <laughs> you and Alan initially out of your big area. Yes. is what he said. That is his big specifically. Area. Um, <laughs> he always does call me an asshole when I'm on jam cruise. So I guess <laughs> yeah, he talks about it way too much. But now it's appropriate because that's where you and Alan met. Uh, it is well, uh, yeah, I believe it is um, in the jam room. More than likely, um, it's it's hard to remember exactly when we met because. 4.30 you know. a.m. on a cloudy day. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, Just a haze. Huh? Absolutely. And, and we're going to be there celebrating That's right, next, next Jam Cruise. Well, he also sat in for Simon. Do you remember why did Simon miss gigs? He had some family things he had to get back for. Because we, we were on the road for like 10 weeks, pretty much, um, with, with Turquoise. So, um, yeah, there was a couple of instances where he, he had a split and get back to the U.K., so, you know, I'd wanted to play with Alan for a while properly. You know, we'd, we'd jam together and things. But um, Well, mention one. One is Grant Green because the, na- the band is named after a Grant Green album. Did you, you did a project, a Grant Green related? We did the Grant Green tribute, yeah. Uh, Green was beautiful, yeah. A reference to his <laughs> album called Green is Beautiful. Right, and you have a song, Green was beautiful, on the new... No, the song is gre- beautiful. No. Huh? Wait, who's How on way? first? Oh, no, no, you're right. Green was you're beautiful. right. <laughs> I'm getting confused with my ises and wases. And you're pro- you have so many projects, <laughs> right? Talk about spinning yeah. plates. Well, I like to call Manador a band, not a project. Okay, that's good. Well, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I have a quote from Alan. He told Jambase, this isn't some all-star band. It's a band that I plan to devote a lot of time and energy to. Mm-hmm. I take what I do very seriously. I don't like to spread myself too thin. All of the energy I can give to a thing, it gets all of it. So this isn't a one-and-done kind of tour. We're going to do it as long as we can do it, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. I, you take it. You, you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We're already uh, planning a new album in September, so we're going to be recording a new album. So, you know, it's a kind of, we're not going away. This is a thing. Yeah, but meanwhile, some of these musicians, like Kevin Scott's in, what, like 10 different bands, and they're all amazing. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, we've all got to make some money, you know. Yes. But, uh, you know, obviously touring bands, he's, you know, um, not not so many. It's just well, the uh, the Jimmy Herring thing he's been doing pretty pretty much flat out. Yeah, but yeah. but the band like this, though. And for It's not like, I mean, you live in Denver, so everyone comes to Denver, so that's easy. But, I mean, these musicians are all spread out. I mean, you've got Atlanta and California and everything in between. Yeah, but that's it's closer than America and Britain and Spain. Right. Okay. So it's Touché. actually way easier. <laughs> now, it was your idea to bring <laughs> Kevin... Not the easiest, but it's easier. It was your idea to bring Kevin into the band, right? Um, it was actually Chris Spees' idea. So Spees on the keys. Um, he, he and Kevin have been friends for a good 10 years or so. And I'd actually never met Kevin. Um, so Chris kept saying, oh, you got to get my boy on bass. I was like, yeah, I don't know. Who, I don't know who. I don't know this guy. Um, and then we did a show uh, around Christmas time just before that. I was like, oh, I see what you're saying. And then I mentioned it to Alan, and Alan nearly, nearly fell off his stool when, when I said Kevin Scott name. He's like, what? Really? That guy? He's my favorite bass player ever. So, yeah, <laughs> wow. it was kind of, okay, I guess Spees was right. 
And, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's how that happened. Originally from Alabama, but we have taken possession of him here in Atlanta. Very, very proud of Kevin Scott. Yeah, well, he's definitely, he's been, he's been bruised. He's been Hamptonized. Yes, yes. <laughs> Can you talk about your decision to introduce the band to the world by your weekly downloads? You would, you downloaded, offered a song mm-hmm. a week, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, the, the kind of, the initial idea came from, you know, the, the bullfighting posters that I did, um, that I'd always kind of loved the imagery of that and I just thought it would be a cute idea to sort of introduce each member with a with their own bullfighting poster um, and then it kind of morphed into like well hey we could like release that each week and and, and link a tune that featured them specifically and uh, and then we worked together with a uh, with Press Junkie, who kind of got a, a different press partner each week, which, which were great. And, and Wait, uh, say, say that again. You got a different pre- oh press partner for the release. Not a pr- I was like, that's a. I thought you meant like new publicist. Yeah, it uh, was. That- a, yeah, it was a, a hired a, a pre- um, well. No, we got a we got a, 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 a press junkie or a, um, like a marketing company, and, mm-hmm. and they they got a, a different press partner each week. Right, right. So, different, so different, live for like, live, different or whatnot. publications. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Well, that album's no bullshit. I agree. It's no, it's no, yeah, no bullshit, of course. And choosing, with the Matador. Oops, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I get to work with them every interview. Oh, stop. Lucky me. Um, the singers are a key decision yeah. point as well. Can Absolutely. you talk about choosing Kimberly from Pimps of Joy Time and Adrian from Oregon? Um, well, or is it Oregon? So I've never figured that out. I, well, def- I definitely say it wrong because every time I say it, people go who, and then and then I say it a slightly different way, and they go, oh. You can always remember Orgon. after you see them, you can say Oregon because they're Oregon. I remember Orgon. Seth returning from Jam Cruise, and that was the only band he was talking about two or three years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, uh, Kim, uh, I've known Kim since before she was in the Pimps of Joy time. So uh, Kim was actually on our album Therapy, um, which was 2013. We recorded that. Um, so I've known Kim since then. We we took her to New Orleans with us uh, in 2014, um, and then you know I've just we've done various tours and 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 and, and um, recordings with her, and then. She, then she joined Pimps of Joy Time, you know, since then, the last couple of years, I think. And um, so I, I'd known her since, I mean, that was an obvious choice for me because we're great friends. We both live in Denver. Um, but did you already have material and you're, and, and you're thinking, wow, her voice would sound great on it? Or are you just like, she's a great singer, we'll make it work? Um, no, we, also, we actually did have material. We went in, the four of us, um, and, um, and kind of just made some music up at Alan's studio. And it was kind of like the end of the first day I was like you know what we should do mm. gotcha. and, I, and I was like I think I know what you're thinking and I was like we should get Kim and Adrian and so he was like yeah they both hit you at the same time the idea to get both oh yeah totally I was I just it just it, yeah I don't know why it made sense it just totally made sense and, uh, well, I think and, and Adrian had been a great friend of mine for the last few years you know from when we started, um, we, you know, did a few, few shows with uh, Oregon, Oregon, or- Oregon, in Oregon. But but there's something unique, and Rob, I hope you don't mind me stealing your research. Um, there's something unique about their, that the way that you utilize these voices in your music, and I'm curious if that's what brought you there to the, these two ladies, or I think if that ladies brought you to that, and that being. That they don't sing in this. We'll say it. Well, at points you use them as though they were a horn section. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Um, yeah, that was definitely one purpose, and um, 
and, and one concept of it. I think the reason that they work so well is they both have this kind of, I mean, I know Kim has a real, you know, jazz background, and, and but Adrian is like very studied as well. And, and um, so it's kind of, they just have immense musicality as mm -hmm. well as, you know, being great singers. They, you know, when we're talking music theory, they know what we're talking about. Not every singer does that. And have, they have the versatility of their voices to be able to handle a lot of ranges and, and, and a lot of, you know, um, different sonic ideas and things like that. So, yeah, there was definitely... With, I, I knew with those two girls that I could use them as a horn section at times to kind of have them weaving in and out. I wanted them to be part of the... Very much part of the music rather than being... A singer with a backing band. Um, but were you thinking that I got this idea for a band and I want these the singers to be the horn section at times? Was that a thought or was that it, an afterthought? It was like at times it could. Oh, oh well, when I first started the band. Yeah, like before you before you reach out to the singers. Me, is yeah. that part of the decision point? Yeah, it was when we were in the studio and I was like, I could just hear it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were laying it down. I was like, I there's something missing here. And I thought, rather than like horn section, I can hear uh, voices on this, which and not even necessarily words, just voices vocalizing yeah, chords. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, to be fair, you know, the the, the first tune, get ready. There was already, you know, we, me and Alan were kind of shouting that at the beginning, and I was like, you know, originally it was just going to be, you know, more gang vocal from the males, you know, and uh, which but, is a great first song. Right, get ready. You. Here yeah. comes the matador. I know, right? Yeah. So um, it definitely was evolving, and it was evolving very quickly because we just we just got there. It was the first time the four of us had played together, um, and uh, Alan hadn't met Chris. I'd met Kevin once, um, and uh, and I think you know Kevin had played with Alan twice or something. So you know, I was I was calling it a social experiment. We basically all went up in March up to Alan's studio, stayed in an Airbnb. Never, not really knowing each other that well, and I, but I just was confident that we could go in, and I, I knew that the the personalities were just going to work, and we were going to make music. So then, after the first day, I was like, like I said, I was like, there's there's something missing, and I know what it is. And as soon as I said it, Alan was like, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So and I was like, and I know who it should be. It should be Kim and Adrian. He's like, boom, absolutely, let's do it. So. Um, I, you know, and there was also there was a bit of a musical reference um, with uh, Minnie Ripperton's Rotary Connection. I don't know if you know that band. It was kind of like her psychedelic band in the late '60s, after she'd done the kind of chess soul stuff, and then before she did her kind of more ethereal mm -hmm. stuff. Um, it's and in that band. Um, the vo it, it, it's the same kind of like this vocal textures like kind of weaving in and out of the music you know not necessarily taking the lead at, at all points but but very much textural part of the music and that was a that was a reference point to it because I'd, I'd always loved that also um, as a, a, a Max Roach album called It's Time um, which um, would that be Abby Lincoln on that one? she is on that she it, it's um Wow, what's the tune she did? Gregory Porter just did a version of it recently. I love her. I got to um, hang out with her a couple but times. Yeah, so there's there's one tune on that album is where oh you did That's yeah wonderful good. woman and can yeah. may I say divorced I, I I don't know what she and Max Roach got divorced she still had not a bad word to say right. about I've never heard right. anyone say a bad word right. about Max right. Roach right. but go on I'm right. sorry 
so there's there's one tune where she where she leads the tune but the rest of it is it's kind of like choral <coughs> so it's like it's it's you know it's it's like it's very jazz it's very jazz like hard-hitting jazz but with these guys Whoa's, bees, like all this kind of thing going on all this chorus, and i'd always just loved it and so again another inspiration point of kind of using them like a horn section and and uh um, but then, you know, having vocals and, and, you know, and the band's developing now, you know, we gone on the road and, um, um, you know, so you don't want to just play the music like it was played on the record. It, you, you then got opportunity to, to develop it, stretch it out. And we actually you know, wrote a couple of tunes. We had a, we had a snow day in uh, Philadelphia and gig was canceled so we uh that's got some, for creativity got, we got some got some got some wine and, yeah. and hold up in a in a hotel room and wrote two new songs so we've which we've recorded already was it your label wine or is it uh was it your label's wine don't you have a label of wine i do not have a label i thought wine. you did for some reason no. they have a record label no but uh well, you but, should. I, but, but we absolutely <laughs> I, I mean you know i'm working on it oh maybe it was maybe someone made a uh a label. Oh, on. you know what? There was a Jam Cruise yeah, wine where they did a uh, yeah a new ah. Master Sounds label for one of the wines, and we and we auctioned it yeah. for Positive Legacy. Yeah. C- can I edit, entertain? We're working the Positive Legacy table tomorrow. We'll talk about them more later. Cool. Can I entertain him for one minute with a Abby Lincoln imitation? Sure, good. Who used to dance? <laughs> the face. It's a visual. It's a, it's a visual thing. I was our, like, our listeners like, will love that. They yeah. can't hear you shaking your head. <laughs> Although I do, who used to die? Like, talk about a woman who uses pauses. I could. Don't get me started. One last thing. You do, it's, you're trying to do like a Martin Short impersonation. No, uh, not at all. She's wonderful. I got to hang out. She's. Uh, I used to see her at a place called Scholars in in uh, Master. Scholars. One last thing. Will you guys try to outdress the new Master Sounds? Uh, well, actually, the the uh, um, the funny thing was Kevin Scott showed up. Totally outdressing me. I, I kind of decided to go with a vest because I seen Alan wears a vest a lot instead of a jacket. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll change it up so I'm not just in a sports coat all the time. And I show up on the on the first show, the, the first run in March, and I'm wearing a vest and everyone else has got a sports coat on. I was like, <laughs> oh, he, what? He thought he read the memo. It said, look, your best, but his print was off and it said, look, yeah. your vest. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got to say, Kevin was giving me a run for my money. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. Attaboy, Kevin. Yeah. All right, so new master sounds, of course. By the way, we have them in the house here at Terminal West tonight. Noticed a couple of Atlanta folks involved in uh-huh. your sound check. Yes. Can you tell yes. us about them? Well, very excitingly, um, I happened to meet Lamar... Lamar Williams Jr. Um, at a show in Denver. Um, it was a Weed for Warriors event, um, and it was um, Peter Levin was uh, was organizing it, and I got invited to come and, to come and be part of it. And Lamar was on it, and we were just immediately like, "Oh, hey, I see, I see you, and uh, I hear you," and uh, and uh, and then. I was like, well, I'm going to be in Atlanta in a, in a, uh, in a few weeks. And um, so we just started talking. I was like, hey, do you want to come and sing a couple of songs with us? And, and uh, so that's what we're doing tonight. This is the first time I've seen him again since then. And so we're doing doing uh, three songs tonight with him. And a trombone. And, then, and Jonathan Lloyd. And who's then Jonathan a, Lloyd. Pretty who's much been, always here when he's you guys been a long ter- long-term friend. You know, Bear Creek days. We met him early days of Bear Creek. And... Every time we come through, he, he jumps up with us, which is great, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely the, the, the rest of the guys that never met Lamar before, 
and I'd be like, just trust me. <laughs> and they, we were just in soundcheck, and they're like, oh. I was like, yep. I'll take a pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple more things, and we'll talk about renewable energy. But there's another Atlanta guy that you've worked with a lot, or, or you did a project with, was Ike Stubblefield, right? Oh, right, yeah. What yeah. did you do with Ike? Um, we did a bunch of trios, the trio stuff. I, we actually went to Europe with him. Uh, I did. Oh, it was me and Jamal Watson, who I also met on Jam Cruise, um, in the jam room. The one I was running the jam room one night. Um, this guy got up and as soon as he started hitting the drums, I was like, oh, hello. Okay. Hey, Perfect. Yeah, we're playing together. This is a thing. Uh, and so he was, I started the West Coast Sounds uh-huh. with, uh, with Jamal in mind and, and the horn section from San Francisco. And Ike doing the bass lines as well, effortlessly. Oh, that, that wasn't with Ike, but, uh, but then, and then subsequently, when Ike hired me, I, I said we should get Jamal on drums. And um, so then that was the trio that we did a bunch. But how do you like playing with a keyboardist that's doing the bass lines as well? Does that I, affect I, your approach? I, I really like it because I, I, I like, well, I'll, I'll say it another way. What I don't like is a bass player who's playing too many notes. Sure. So it's great to have bass players who put space into it and by nature of the fact that they're you know playing left hand right hand feet tapping their head and you know pulling their ears at the same time you know it's, I don't know how many how many hands and things what, what do they got it's like it's an octopus like magi- right? magicians yeah so I you know um, so I kind of like the, the, the approach that they have to take which puts more space in the music doesn't kind of get in the way so much but it's just a little hard sometimes like the, the front house sound guys don't understand how to translate the organ bass to, to out front. Well, so it's worked in smaller venues. You get on a big stage, it's kind of like... Well, that's a, good, that's a question I have, is that why, as important as it is to have the bass player, isn't it as important to have that front of house engineer that's in your pocket that you bring with you on, to even if it's a trio? I mean, I know the next thing you're going to say is, yeah, it's great, but where's the money? So I, I mean, probably just answered that, never mind. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... it. Yeah, and, and it's difficult because, you know, you know, you need... you. Well, I'm saying you need a tour manager. Here we are without a tour manager. But um, um, uh, but it's we've tried having a tour manager who's you know who's doing tour managing and front of house. And then there's shot. And well, it's just it, it, there's too many things to do, and, yeah. and one thing is going to suffer over the other. And, and uh, it's it's almost too much to too much of a thing to ask one person to try and do. It's interesting. Yeah. You don't have a tour manager with you on this part of the tour. Mm-hmm. But you as a band have gone as far as management management. A couple of years ago, you went, you, you made a major change in management, right? Is it about three, four years ago now? Um, uh, what is it? Two, two, two years At least years two ago? years because it was fresh when we interviewed Simon. So it was about two and a half years ago? Yeah. What are, the best, what are the best and worst things about that going with big time or you know, new management? New management? Well, new management is me. So you're managing the man. I'm the manager. So yeah. you're busy as hell. That would be a negative. I, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I'm wearing a lot of hats right now. Um, I, I I manage Master Sounds. I manage Matador. Ugh. I'm currently tour managing the Master Sounds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just for four or five I, gigs, I, though, right? I, I produce the music and and then and band lead and then play the guitar on the side. <laughs> and setting and moonlighting up moonlighting as a guitar player. <laughs> setting up the studio work. <laughs> setting up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was just talking to your bassist Pete Shand about his recovery from his spinal condition, mm-hmm. which. Sometimes great things come out of tragedy. Like, for example, I think you can't possibly not have a sense of the adoration that fans yeah. have for the band based yeah. on the response to what happened to him. Yeah, it was incredible. And, and, and um, 
you know, it, 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 and it was weird timing as well because it was actually the the uh, it was the eve of the eclipse. You know that big eclipse that everyone was like yeah, traveling to yeah, and all course. that. And it, and um, he um, he'd had surgery lined up, um, and then so he knew there was some sort of problem. Oh no, no, it was he'd been having consultation and things like that. He had we we would had this kind of workers' comp thing going on, and. Um, and uh, this insurance thing in place and it was about five days before his surgery and they basically turned around and said you know what we've ch- we'll change our mind uh, and now we're going to sue you for anything that we've already given you what? yeah so it and he already had you know he was he, his operation was scheduled and he was like bedridden at this point um, and uh so it was it was a mad panic to to try and raise the funds because they were like, well, you know, we're not we're going to cancel it cancel it unless we get fifty percent deposit up front, and um, so we kind of you know we we managed to get that money up front and then and then and then we did the GoFundMe, um, which we launched on the evening or the eve of the of the um eclipse of the eclipse and i'm thinking this is a this is terrible timing because everybody's traveling to the eclipse you know sunday anyway i was like i don't know we can we can have a go but i don't know how successful it's going to be on, on this particular day if you know what i mean it would have been better on a you know on a regular monday or tuesday when people were at their you know phones and computers um, and that was the incredible thing. It was like as soon as we launched it, maybe like six PM on that on that Sunday evening. And uh, by the time I went to bed around like one AM, it was already like a third of the way there. Wow! It was it was insane. I mean, it was thirty six hours. We we raised the money in thirty six hours. That's incredible. Yeah, God, there was. Um, and then literally, he went. He literally went in and had surgery two days two days later. And at a part of his recovery, did he have to play another bass for a while? He, he tried a lighter bass, and he has to work in his posture, and then <laughs> and then finally it kicked in where he was able to. He use never his he never did the the lighter bass, you know. Right. Luckily, we had we had a little break from touring for his recovery, uh, which is why it had been scheduled at that point, you know. And it was almost like if we didn't do it then, then we definitely weren't going to be able to do the next tour anyway, because and he wouldn't have had the, the recovery time to have done it, so. That's why we didn't we, we couldn't cancel it, um, but uh, I I bought him a wide wide padded strap. <laughs> but uh, I I think I think really his recovery is out of the fact that he's a, a super healthy guy, you know he was uh, uh, you know he's he was a fitness instructor when he was younger and you know he's like he's kept himself in shape and. And uh, the, like you, the, Rob. I, hmm. I think I think the surgeon in the surgeon said when he when he saw him like for his first first checkup he was like wow you you've healed like a twenty year old wow you know I don't want to give Pete's age away on the mic but it's let's just 20. say it's nearly three times uh, <laughs> nearly, yeah it's definitely more than double that so well music is has healing powers too. Music does have healing powers. I mean, I, I've had that myself. I've had, you know, injuries and accidents over the years, and I've kept playing through them, and I've healed so much quicker than if I had just been laid in bed. I mean, yeah, but this, this scene does not. I mean, the, as healing as the music powers may be. Yeah, Van Morrison's done records on it. Yeah, yeah. Full records. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
right, Renewable Energy is the most recent CD, which makes sense title-wise on so many levels. I mean, you have the, the vortex of energy that happens when you're live. Exactly. You have the fact that Pete went away, but he came back. The band still had the energy. And then you have the environmental. Env- you, you, you're yeah. a very conscious person, and you, yeah. uh, we need renewable energy in this world. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it, it, you know the, like, like you said, the, the, that, that whole exchange between the audience and, and the band, that's something that we've always talked about, something that we've always believed in. And, um, and uh, that's a big big focus of why we do what we do um and so we wanted to try and figure out how to capture that in the title it just it seemed appropriate and it, you know especially like being in colorado as well and it's that kind of I, I just i don't know it just it just kind of fell into place and i thought i thought it was kind of cheeky and, and i was like you know i usually have the names and throw them out to the guys i'm like what do you what do you think of this i'm like i don't know i said Okay, you, we're doing it then. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it was recorded in Denver, part of it in New Orleans. Yep. And then yep. guest spots were. And then guest in- spots, yeah. The percussion was in the UK. Our old buddy did it there. Wow. Big, a big fan that just passed by. That train's <laughs> actually famous on this show. It's <laughs> been on another episode. But we'll- and, um, and then. Uh, We'll talk about that. That's something you'd never done before. Had you ever recorded in multiple sites like that before, the band? You know, we've never done... Uh, we've, we've actually always done a record by going in the studio for you know five, six days uh, and, and written and recorded at, at, there and then. Um, that's how every album's been made. This one, it was just... We were just so busy. So we were finding like two days here and three days there and, and then... And it was a bit of a nightmare as, as the as the producer of it, um, getting all these, you know, finding all these different drives with takes and all that, you know. I was like, wait, wait, where do we record that? I don't, you know, and, and then <laughs> farming it out to other people and having them record and send them to me. And people are sending it back in different hertz and different bits, you know, like you know, twenty four bit. It's like, oh no, I sent it in thirty six bit. Like, ah, oh, it doesn't line up. And, you know, it's this whole kind of technical nightmare um and, and then you're also dealing with people on their own time schedules and when you're dealing it the, i don't know if it's just the older we get or whatnot but dealing with more the more people you deal with the harder it is because everyone's on their own schedule someone might be real quick in a day someone might take two weeks and then if you're oh, waiting for, sure, for someone for sure. you gotta get and as someone producer, else, like, it God. falls on you to make it all happen uh, yeah it definitely you know it definitely took a while it was the the most time-consuming album we've ever done for sure you know i like at certain points i was like i don't even know if, we, if there's an album here, you know, but then I started. I was like, "Oh no, wait! We recorded. Oh, I remember we did a session." <laughs> and I was like, "Found another three tracks." I was like, "Oh, hey, we could put horns on this." And it's like, and then it, it just kind of like it was that. That was the process. It was it was quite an ongoing, um, probably a good like year and a half, I'd say, from start to finish. Who, who is is there a Chicago girl or is that just a Midwest slant? There on is your a style? Chicago girl. It's my wife. Oh, really?
because it's interesting that it wasn't your first foray into the States to open for Grey Boy in Chicago? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. Did you meet her around that time or since? No, since. Since she's actually living in Colorado when I met her, but she's from Chicago. And we have, I haven't, I kind of came up with that riff in the sound check in Chicago, and all our family was there kind of hanging out, and I just, it just seemed appropriate. And then uh, Green was beautiful, which yes. is an homage to your. Is he your primary? I'd say so. I say so. And yeah. it, it kind of to spin off for a minute. I I noticed that you. Well, we we often talk about Joni Mitchell. Who, by the way, Joni Mitchell came out in, to a James Taylor show the other day. Came out of her uh, shell. She, she hadn't been in public, but we talk about Kill Mommy, which is um, how you have to stop listening to your primary influence at some point yeah, for yourself yes. to come out. I, I think you take it to another level where at least at some point, maybe you still mainly listen to sax-driven music, not guitar-driven yes. music. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was, you know, I definitely was in a kind of jazz background, even though I was in a Hendrix and Black Sabbath and stuff like that. But, you know, I was in, also in the jazz from kind of like 14, 15, but I never really liked jazz guitar. I thought it was all, it was a bit, it was a bit, I found it a bit lame, you know? And, uh, and then you got, you know, then you got John Coltrane, like, you know, screaming, and I'm like, mm -hmm. why doesn't the guitar sound like that? You know? <laughs> and, but then I, I heard, I heard Grand Green, uh, and that, that's when I, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's the voice that I want in jazz. And, and, um, um, but yeah, yeah you're, you're totally right. I mean, you, you know, I listened to him and nothing else for a long time, but then I, I had to completely stop listening to it and, and didn't listen to it for many, many years until somebody actually said to me, he's like, you know, you should do a Grand Green tribute. I was like, I think that's a bit obvious. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, but you'd be surprised how many people don't know Grand Green. And, it, and I, I was like, really? Because, you know, you just when you're so into something, you kind of think, doesn't everybody know about this guy? You know? And and that and that's been a really interesting thing to find out how many people I've I've you know I've kind of led them to Grand Green. It's like I I never really heard of him, well, but then but then I started listening, and then I'm like, oh wow, this is this found all this wealth of music, and well, quite a few people have told me that. Well, not everyone not everyone uh, came out of a high school jazz band, you know what I mean? Right. And if you're in your thirties, you know, twenty or thirties, I find it interesting with your music. That's exactly. You're a gateway to the music that influenced you. Same right. thing with Robert Walter. Ro Robert Walter. Someone's like, "Oh my God, Robert, you're amazing." And then, and he's like, "I'm amazing." If you like this, this is all Dr. Lonnie Smith. Yeah, Doctor yeah, Who yeah. is like, "What yeah, do you mean you don't know yeah, Dr. Yeah, Lonnie yeah. Smith?" Yeah. Well, you realize that as you get older, for sure. Yeah, I mean that's and and and, and I've been seeing that happen. It's been really interesting. Now, what yeah. about like when, when you, the music the new Master Sound is playing though is. It's not a new music, you know, it's not a new style. It's not like a mm -hmm. new, you know, I mean, you guys have obviously have your own twist and, and signature to it, but how much do you go into your music and say, hey, you know what, we're sounding a little too much like, or or you don't even care about that, and it's just, this is the style we play and we go at it? Uh, yeah, we don't, I don't really overanalyze, um, you, you know, you put four people together and... You know, whatever their influences are, this what comes out when when they play, and and, and it's the certain combination of those four people that, that make the music. You know, the master sound sounds like the master sounds because of those four people. Um, if you took one of them out, replaced it with someone else, it would sound like a, it's new new a master slightly, sounds. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, you know, because uh, you know, people people ask me about that with 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 Manador, and I said, well, again, it's just it's. You put those personalities together, and 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 you get a 
a, a brand new sound, a fresh sound, because that combination's never been done before. You know, it's, so you don't, you know, and it's you, you would drive yourself crazy if you would really try to. Yeah, some have. And analyze, you know, what music do you make? I don't, I don't just make the music that I make. And, and um, people say, well, what is it? Is it this? I'm like, I don't know. What's it sound like to you? Right. You don't want it to become mechanical. You want it to come from the heart. Yeah. And it's like, it is really hard to be objective about your own music. I'm like, I don't know. It's just, I sometimes I make a thing. I was like, is this even, is this even funk? Is this even funky? Well, sometimes the purest, <laughs> the purest things are hardest to describe, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. the most unique. Well, is Green was beautiful, a, a double, since uh, from an environmental? Because I was thinking about it. I was driving, listening to it. And, and here in Atlanta, we have all this development going on. Oh God, and I went by an area where it used to be greenery, and it was all... And I was like, wow, Green was beautiful here before. And, and I was listening to that song, and I'm thinking, well, maybe that's a double <laughs> meaning of this song title, too. No, if anything, the reason I called it Green is Beautiful, because the first shows we did were around 420 weekend in, in Denver. Oh. <laughs> I was like, well, let's call it Green is Beautiful, because surely everyone will come to that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, what about Stash? It's a, probably the most experimental song on the album. Oh, well, that's Pete's song. So Is it? Yeah. And is yeah. it called Stash? Was there some sort of influence, Stash-oriented th- influence? I think in Denver. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think it was kind of trying to be a little kind of soundtracky, you know, oh. a bit, a bit um, 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 halfway between, um, yeah, I'm going blank. Erie and Pittsburgh? What's the... Uh, What's the wow? What's the big wow wow song? Oh. Are you talking about the meters? No, no. no I think I'm trying to think about soundtrack. I'm, I'm going blank on it. Huh. But it's almost be, you know cross between a, a, a kind of a black black exploitation movie. Uh, uh, um, what is it? It's a, a, and 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 like and all like and then snatch. You know, like a, a, oh, a, 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 a the, the, the the other one, the 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 British kind of movie. You know, so like. Why am I blanking on that? That's driving me crazy. It'll hit. You know what? It'll hit you later. Because you're you spinning set, so many but... plates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this right, is it right it. here. Uh, what about grooving with the groomers? It seems to me that one you have a groove that's so infectious that even the most half-assed music fans, like people at a wedding, groomers, would appreciate oh. it. Oh, that's what that. that <laughs> is that not it? No, I'm inventing my own meanings for these titles. I know, I love it. As you do, you can use them in future. The interviews. groomers, All right? Okay, okay. Um, the groomers. Um, well, uh, <laughs> so it was. Uh, it's because I'm an avid skier, and um, it just felt like grooving on those blue groomers. You know. Oh, that's and, a skiing uh, reference. It's a skiing reference. I miss that. And uh, and also, I mean, I think it had a couple of different working titles but then when we did this collaboration with my skis um um i was kind of like is that a person or a brand of skis uh it's a brand meyer okay. yeah oh, i thought you said Maya skis and i was like Maya skis i don't know yeah. sorry I, I, meyer skis oh, meyer skis oh, I've heard, even I've heard of that. yeah meyer skis that's they're, a big one uh they're a, a a small um independent bespoke company uh, uh out of denver really but i've they, heard of them yeah, yeah. I mean, they're Different doing skis, great. Skis, maybe they're doing great. Um, I actually did a a little uh, benefit show at their location and um, got to know the owner really well. And I was like, "How do you fancy doing a master sound ski?" So, is his name Oscar? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Terrible. No, don't encourage him. Um, so yeah. So then when we kind of released the ski, we released Grooving on the Groomers, and you know, just to tie it in. Huh. 
Uh-huh. Well, what about pudding and pie? That seems to feature Joe a lot. Is that is that uh, are those two, his two favorite desserts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's. We're gonna do this yeah. for now on with you. I like it's, this. Yeah. You know, pudding like and pie. Coming. Pudding and pie is just a very you know, British expression. You know. Oh. I gotta get uh, you a uh, popper though. If you're gonna talk like that, Rob. Sorry. It's kind of <laughs> random. It's kind of working. You know, working title. Oh, hey. Speaking of which, speaking of British and all that, I, I thought I saw this and I thought you might want this. This is. Uh, you might. This might bring you. Bring you. You know, home. Here, you can open it up. I didn't blow my nose in the tissue. Or anything. I know. There's a little tissue like, there. There it is. There it is. A little some sh- sort of meaning. A sugar cube. A sugar cube. I don't yeah. understand. Don't you put that in tea? I don't. I don't trust these in America. Oh, they no. usually have things dri- dripped on them. Dave Van right. didn't touch it. I got. I got a- <laughs> Just makes me think of Bjork. <laughs> what about one more? Swimming with the fishes. Swimming with my fishies. Okay, it's got oh, the, okay. a low key and timeless. You know, timeless guitar approach and tone, mm-hmm. and kind of a low key beauty. Is it, it seems almost like about someone's comfort zone. Um, um, so my wife is a Pisces, okay, and ah, so, fish. so she's my fishies, uh, and she's two a com- of them. She's a comfort a zone, absolutely. And uh, and I, it's it was yeah, that was kind of yeah, that's what that is. And and it's you know it it's got a very it's got like a Pharaoh Sanders vibe. About it, um, that was what I was kind of trying to capture. Like I love that that music, Pharaoh's music, and um, but yeah, that's kind of where the title came from. Now, in the past, Simon has written lyrics for the band, right? I think he wrote one. Oh, so he didn't write. <laughs> gonna be it just called, me. Is that the one he wrote? Nah, <laughs> very funny. Who wrote no. "Gonna Be Just Me"? Adrian. Oh, yeah, and brought it to you. No, actually, we we uh, I wrote the groove. Uh, we recorded the groove, just just kind of this uh, open ended groove, just going round and round. And I sent it to Adrian, and she wrote lyrics to it. And then I sent it to the horns, and they put the horns on it. Wow. Will you be doing that sort of um, creation process with with her in in, in Matador? No, no, Completely that's going to be yeah. That that'll be that with, with with this one again. It was that whole thing, you know. We'd we'd gone into the studio at different times, and I just kind of laid down this groove, and then I was just thinking, hmm, okay, what we're we going to do with this groove? And I was like, oh, you know, I I could hear Adrian's vocal on it, so I sent it to her, and I kind of gave it carte blanche. and said, just whatever you want to do on it. Now, uh, if I, it's got to be fun to do. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember ever seeing you guys cover Funk Forty Nine, James Gang before. Was that one you had covered before? Or was uh, that one you busted? No, out? we. Um, <laughs> um, someone had the idea of of us doing some kind of rock and roll covers, and that one sprung to mind because, uh, again, I know I keep going on about my wife, but she's pretty special. Um, <laughs> no problem. Go and on uh, you like. she in, she introduced me to that tune uh, when we first met. She had a like a, a, a mixtape in the car, and that was one of the tunes. And a lot of the stuff, you know, I didn't really like. I was like, oh, do we have to have this mix on again? But then Funk 49 will come on. I was like, I, I, I really dig this. And I, I could see us doing this one day. So when this was suggested to us, I was like, well, I know exactly the fir- what the first tune is going to be. None of the other tunes actually made, made the cut, but that one, that one did. So. How familiar were the other guys in the band with that song? They'd never heard it before. Really? I said I'd never heard it before until she played it to me. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and now we do do it live, which is really fun. Now, initially with the band, you would bring songs pretty fully formed, but by the time Made, Made for Pleasure came out a couple of years ago, it had become very much more of a collaborative process. Have the two albums since been more along that line, or have you at all gone back to bringing fully formed songs to the band? Uh, 
Made for pleasure. I'm trying to think. But there's only one since then, right? There's the Nashville thing, and then... Oh, yeah. Well, the Nashville thing was just us playing all our old... A lot of our old tunes just in... in, Live audience. With a live audience, yes. So So if you were to do that kind of thing... uh, uh, recording again in Nashville, would you do it live again, or would you do it without? The and can we yeah, I mean, I mean, when we started said live, there was like thirty people in. That's in that's there. live. Yeah. That's we live. Want, yeah. We want to be two of those thirty people. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. More. Than, yeah. No, but so if you were to do another album in that sense, uh-huh. would you be doing it live? Yes, like next yes. week yes. or something. Like like maybe yeah, just yeah, just the top of my head, off the top of my head, yeah, maybe next week, <laughs> and maybe some different tunes to the last one, you know. But go on, the songwriting <laughs> yes, process. Yes, so, uh, so that's that one. So we've only done one album since, um, and again, it was this whole thing because it was it wasn't like our typical album where it was a, it was a little a little disjointed. Um, but you know, it's like you know, um, Joe brought Tantalus in, um, Pete brought Stash in, I brought Yoko and and the 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 backing of going to be just me um, and Groovin' and Groomers and and. Um, can't think of any of the others. I guess oh. the question is, is it uh, to what extent do the songs evolve from the original writer's notion? They, I mean, they, they always evolve. We, none, none of us write with a with a kind of, especially these days. Maybe first two albums, I kind of say, okay, this is the song. You do this. You do this. You do this. After that, it became more collaborative, where I would purposely not write a finished product. You know, so you'd kind of come in and say, okay, this is the groove. Joe, why don't you put a melody on top? So it's better for him to write his melody rather than me say, you play this melody. So, um, and then I said to P, it says, this is kind of the bass line, but let's like work on it for a couple of hours. And that bass line might just change until it's something that he's digging, you know, and he's feeling comfortable with. So, the, and same with Sai, he said, okay, this is the initial groove, but you tweak it. And, and so we would just kind of jam the groove for a couple of hours until we kind of all felt like it was representing how we wanted to play. Um, and I found that that was a better way for everybody to really engage in it and engage in the writing and, and engage in the band, really. Now, shifting to the live setting, when you bring in oh. horns, whoop, when you bring in horns, are you are you charting or providing the charts? I guess you can do it on computer now. Are, is that your... No, absolutely not. Um... um Mike Olmos, the trumpet player who I've now been working with for for, for many years, he was uh, initially on, I can't remember which album, when I'd first moved to San Francisco, I, I got him and Joe Cohen in. Um, Might have been the live one then, right? What's that? The live record? No, I think that was some other guys that were in the opening band. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, so they, they came in and, um, you know, so I would kind of say, I will... You know, this kind of vibe, I like kind of going, you know, like make some make some silly noises, and <laughs> they would kind of kind of replicate those and and kind of find lines. And I'd be like, yeah, a bit more this or like, oh yeah, just like like that, yeah, do that, do that, do that, you know. So I kind of direct them, but definitely not scoring it out, things like that. And and they work so quick. Um, and actually, uh, it was Joe Cohen was on the the last record with with Mike, and at this point, I trust Mike so much that I don't even really have to give him that much guidance you know I can kind of send it to him and say put some horns on this he'll put some horns on I might like you know edit it a little bit mess them around say move this whole line from there to there or, or something but I can kind of pretty much he knows what I want and I know what he's gonna do really 
And when you've got point. more than one horn on stage with you, it's got to affect your playing. Because can't the guitar get drowned out because they're in the same register? Can't sometimes um, you have to, uh, uh, change your, your approach at all? Or do you have to... You turn it to 11, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Yeah. Well, even Garcia, I mean, when he had a big horn section with the, with the dead in mm-hmm. the New Year's 82, 83, I mean, I know sonically things have changed, but he was drowned out and he not, not a happy camper during that set. Yeah, I've, I don't really notice it uh, treading on my toes too much. Um, probably my, maybe my sound's a little different from the, from the regular. Um, if anything, it's when the Fender Rhodes plays, when the Fender Rhodes keys and the guitar, they have the very, very sonically similar. Okay. So you gotta, you got to keep out of each other's way. On, Do you on tend that. to play more low notes in that? Depending where he's going. If he's so going really? low, I'll go up, and vice versa. You know, you kind of... Or, you know, if he's doing a solo, then I'll kind of lay out, and and then when I'm doing a solo, I'll ask him to lay out. Whether Sometimes he does or not is another matter. But <laughs> <laughs> well, your style's a bebop approach, right? Yeah. Can you explain to our, to our non-musician uh, listeners what, what that means from a guitar perspective? Um, I mean... You know, I did. You know, I studied a little bit of jazz back in the day, but jazz I, college in Leeds, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think, I think the main, the main difference in the way that I play, the, the a lot of guitar players plays, I play every note rather. There's no hammer-ons, so that's more of a jazz way of playing, where you just you actually pick every note. It's more like a bluegrass picker, really, than than a rock guitar player who's kind of relying on. You sustain and the amp and yeah and, and and reason being is that i actually learned to play on a on a classical guitar my parents didn't let me have an electric till i was like 17 so i was playing black sabbath on a classical guitar and there's no sustain so you know instead of going you have to go yeah so that's literally why the the, the way the way that i play is because of that you mentioned Sabbath again. I just got to ask, what's your favorite era? Like uh, my friend Kevin Castles hmm. opened me opened me up to their whole. There's this improv in the early seventies yeah. that they yeah, were doing. There, there, there was. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this point, I I don't remember enough about it. It was definitely a kind of kind of mid-teen thing that I, that I was into. My brother had a bunch of albums and because uh, I remember that, I mean, I'll never say die that album there's a bunch of jamming on that because I remember kind of remember just sitting there kind of going how does he just keep playing? He's right. just like note after note after note and how does he know how does he know what to do? Like how you know and he's just kind of jamming on a blues and I was like I was just fascinated by it but you know. Has your approach evolved you feel? Um yeah, I'm, I mean... Like, as you get older, you tend to play less notes, right? Uh, <laughs> no, no. As you get older, you forget notes. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah. you, would, you, you would think and, and expect and probably hope, but unfortunately, I think I play as much as ever. Now, you had a, a bromance happen on Jam Cruise with you and John Schofield. Have you guys oh, kept in yeah. touch since then? Yes, we went for dinner recently. Oh, really? Where were you? <laughs> uh, no, he he came through with Mark Mendesky Wood at the Ogden Theatre um, uh, a couple of months ago. And um, it was a pretty exciting night, actually, because we all went for dinner, um, four of them and me and my wife. And um, just as we were setting off for dinner, the power went out in our house, and our house is on the same block as the Ogden Theatre. So, like, the power had gone out in the Ogden. It had gone out in ours. And so we were like, well, I guess let's go drink some wine. There's, not, there's nothing to do here. <laughs> right. So we go for dinner. 
and and where and, and we and it was walking distance, but that block was okay. It was like some wind had come through and knocked a power line. Some Colorado uh, weirdness. Yeah, I know. It was just a freak like gust. It's probably a spam and like knocked things flying. Oh, power line was probably stoned. Yeah, <laughs> right. And um, and uh, the wind so, was high. So so <laughs> we, we sat at dinner and it starts being a kind of, you know what? I don't I don't think this is going to happen, guys. Because uh, the power's not back on, and it was like now it's eight o'clock, and then it's like eight thirty, and they're like, like there's still no power, and they're saying it's going to be tomorrow morning when the power comes back on. Ugh. So there's you know it's a sold out show. There's lines around the block, and um, apparently um, uh, Don Strasberg from AG was there with the engineers trying to bribe them. And they were like, we can't take your bribe, sir. She's like, I'm just going to leave this money in this bush. <laughs> <laughs> and, if, if, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, anything illegal happened here. But, uh, but suddenly there was power. <laughs> but, uh, but so, yeah, so suddenly so there was, we actually, we, I, we, we went and dropped them off at the, um, at, the, uh, at the green room. I went to our house and just as we were walking up the steps, the light came on on the house. We're like, and we heard this roar from people on the street because obviously they couldn't they couldn't let anybody yeah. in. There's no lights, there's no you know nothing. So this huge roar on the street, and it must be like nine thirty by this point. They were supposed to hit at like eight thirty nine o'clock. Um, and it, and it's not quick to get all those people in. By yeah, the way, yeah, but they they got them in and they played. They still did two sets and played super late. Uh. It was yeah, it was killing. It was it made it made such an exciting right, night of it for everybody. For everyone, oh man, gosh, it was yeah. it was so great. Bribes were so great. Meanwhile, we found out later that someone uh, that so apparently you had someone pull the plug so you'd have a little extra time with him. <laughs> Bribes work. Yeah, Ask the nitrous mafia. Bribes work. Uh, I know. Um, d- d- do you ever talk to Sco about Miles playing with Miles? I was watching a video the other day. And I never played with Miles. <laughs> uh, he he's brought it up a few times. Like I watch this video and Miles walks right up to him and like it looks like he's scolding him. <laughs> he doesn't tell me that, but what, what an interesting thing he did tell me was that you know it's like as as a musician you're always self analyzing, and he said that Miles is one of the worst one for that that he'd finish a show and he'd be just he's like oh god I, I sucked man I sucked you know and we'd be like no Miles you were that was amazing he's like you don't know you don't know what you're talking about it's like I, I, you know he was he was never happy with his performances and you know as, and, and you know we were just talking about that process that that, that as, as artists we, we all go through even Miles Davis went through, went through it you know yeah, but he would play with his back to the audience a lot. Do you think that was about locking in with the drummer, or was that a disdain yeah, no, to the audience? No, he talks about that. Did you read the? Did you read his autobiography with uh, Quincy? The, the Quincy wrote. He, well, let's let him tell us. No, well, I didn't read it, so you tell oh, me. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't want to connect with the crowd in that sense. He he wanted his. He didn't want to have that. He wanted to have his space and not be. No, be influenced by mm-hmm. them, probably. Yeah, and you know. It's so it's I I feel I'm sure there's lots of different approaches, but there's definitely you know two approaches. I've I talked to Robert Walter about that one time. He was like he does his similar similar thing. He he doesn't want to connect to the audience so that he influences how he's playing, and I'm the opposite where I'm doing my best to connect to the audience because I'm trying to feed off what they want you know there's, there's and it's a just two different not, not one's right and one's there, wrong there's no right and wrong but i will say i mean listen i don't I, 
I play the trumpet, but not professionally. But I do as an auctioneer. I'm professional, and and I find it sometimes it's it's difficult because when when you connect with the audience, because if you're connecting, sometimes it's great and it's moving. If you're you know same thing with it's playing, sometimes but, it's distracting. But sometimes it can be so distracting because someone says something, someone looks something, they give you something. Big fat blonde like, guy with his shirt like, off. Oh, did I did I play the wrong note? You know, like no. was, I mean, so not to get hung up on that, but to get, but to focus on the groove and the excitement. I don't in that think part. I, you know, I don't think I ever get hung up on thinking that someone thinks I played something wrong. You know, it's like because I did. <laughs> you know, it's like my, the guys in the band don't even know if I played something wrong. You know, it's like it's I don't. But for me, it's just it's you know I think especially because the nature of the music that we play. You know, it's it is all about connection, the the renewable energy thing. You know. Uh, if we were playing introspective jazz, then I'd see that you would rather not, you know, be kind of like watching some someone on the front table, like texting their mother, yeah. you know, and, like George and, Winston probably not looking in the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, well, but you, you guys know, even make it a point. Well, I overheard today at Soundcheck uh, where Simon was asking about the lights and saying, actually, you know, push them back a little further. We want to be able to see the. Audience well, we've noticed that. We've noticed that um, over the you know last last few years, really, that certain gigs were there and we're just kind of. Like, I'm just don't. I'm not connecting with this audience, and then we realize it's because it's so dark on the audience. We actually can't see their faces. And then we're like, oh, okay. And then we're like, hey, lights guy, can you put a bit of light on the audience? And then suddenly we're having a much better time. Uh-huh. And uh, um, we kind of learned that like recently. couple more things before we get in the Wayback Machine. I don't know if we have time for the Wayback Machine. Well, we'll see. The Filthy Six, I've heard you mention a bunch of times. Have they made it to the States yet? And can you tell our listeners who the Filthy Six are? And are they still around? Uh, the Filthy Six, um, um, they they have played a, bon- a bunch in the US and in fact Kevin Scott has played with the Filthy Six really? and that was that was a f- weird connection uh, so Filthy Six really is a, a um it's a trumpet player called Nick Etwell um, who plays with Mumford and Sons oh. so when he, when he was oh, uh, when when he was over here then he would have well he so he kind of he put a band together in the UK but then it's more that he put some you know kind of got a, a, a you know pad of music together so then when he was off the road with Mumford, he could just like call some people together and do a little tour, and that's Kevin and. Uh, and that's where I bumped into Kevin when I did the Mumford Son tour a couple of years ago, and I was uh, yeah, with so Wet, and I go into a bar, and I'm like, I see yeah. it's supposed to be like a side project for Mumford, and I walk in there, and I'm like, what's Kevin doing here? Yeah, it's like totally right. threw me that, off. That's it. That's Filthy Six. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Do you deserve credit for giving Corinne Bailey Ray her start? Uh, no, no. Um, Corinne. Um, was part of the, the the whole scene that we were we were on. Um, she she actually used to work behind the bar at one of the clubs where we used to play, and then she you know she started in Leeds. Oh really? Yeah, she's from Leeds. Yeah, and then she uh, um, and, she, and and we're talking eighteen because obviously you can serve at eighteen in, in in the UK. So then she started like you know people knew she was a singer. She started getting up on stage with people and guests you know, and it was like oh wow she's. She's good, you know. And then um, she, originally she had a band called Helen. I think it was kind of more like a a rock band, and it was kind of an all girl rock band. And I think what Sounds happened like was you what? Sounds like hell to be in. <laughs> and uh, I think what happened was that uh, they they you know they had a manager, and the manager approached you know whoever Sony, and they were kind of like. 
well, we don't really want the band, but we really want Corinne. <laughs> so she had this difficult, awkward. Yeah, 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 because they were like her best friends, you know. Right, yeah. and so, but they they, the they, time, they, 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 they stuck, they, they stuck with her too. But. Now, Rob, listen, I know you want to do the Wayback Machine, but we also have to be well. The payback we well, got to talk well, about. I want to, I want to, I want to bring up a point that you did ask about before, and I want you to go ahead and ask this because sure. you know, I want to respect your time, and we really appreciate it. Um, you had talked about uh, in your research. Uh, you know, when we, we were thinking about Simon and we talked about how the DJ scene and all that sort of stuff. And I want to go have you go ahead and take the lead and, and ask some questions. Well, yeah, about Simon talked about and that, that was my big thing when I first was really digging into you guys, that mm-hmm. I really think that your ability to grab an audience is to some extent stores source from the fact that back in the day you would be playing in front of crowds who would come to see DJs. Yeah. Kind of the opposite of the states where DJs have to try to grab rock sure. crowds. You, you, you're um but but you brought them into the into that world first, and I think it came out of your jazz school at Leeds. Is that where you met these DJs? And they also opened you up to the world of the meters, right? Yeah, and and Grand Green, you know, it was like the first mixtape they they did for me was it had Grand Green on it, had the meters on it, and a bunch of other kind of rare groove and funk things. But yeah, it was it was a little a little collective of DJs in Leeds, and I moved there when I was eighteen to go to school there, and then uh, I'd start going to those club nights where they were playing and. And, and you know, I think I did. I did a one, one my first show there with those guys, and and immediately they they kind of heard what I was trying to do, and they're like, "Oh, you got to listen to this. You got to listen to this," and started feeding me with, with with music. And yeah, and that was the weird thing, which I'm sure Simon told you. So the DJs would play, you know, for for, for an hour, and people would get up, and start dancing a little bit, then the band would come on, and you'd get 45 minutes, maybe an hour if they were generous, and you'd your your mission was to keep the dance floor going. And, and uh, if you didn't get to keep the dance floor going, then you never got asked back. So uh, he told th- us about some of the times it went well. Can you tell us about some of the times it didn't go well? I might have not gone well for his bands, but my bands were always kicking in. <laughs> 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 um, I don't know. That, that, you know. You know, I only remember the good times. But... Uh, you know, and, and then and then you know, so the band would finish, and then the DJ come back on, and then the party would go till two a.m. Um, and you know, so sometimes there would be a lull between the first DJ and then the band. It would like lull a little bit, and sometimes they could li- literally clear the floor, and I was like, they're never getting invited back, you know. But so yeah, that's that was our, that was what we had to do. That was our mission, and and that's what I, what we still do now. And, and again, connecting with the audience and and. Um, and, and, and actually, we actually we call it DJing, um, so that the our kind of specific um, take on jamming, where we when we came to America, people were encouraging us to jam. It's like, oh, okay, you got you're great, but you got to jam out. We're right? Like, what are you really? You know. And um, so how we we like to, we like to jam by kind of like messing with grooves and, and like dropping into something else, and you know, so it's kind of like. I'm like the DJ, and I can drop another, drop the next groove, or drop it into a reggae groove, or like you know, speed it up, or you know, change key, whatever like that. And and so we've kind of got this um, kind of repertoire of 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 things that we can do, kind of mashups, you know, if you know what I mean. Do you ever completely leave the structure of the song, like completely? Yeah, yeah totally. Where you yeah. don't even know if you're gonna go back to the song, you don't even yeah. really know. Yeah, no, sometimes I'll merge two songs together and we'll never return to the other one. Or sometimes I'll just drop a completely different groove and then we'll just end up... If it feels like, oh, I don't want to go back to the other one, we'll just end it here and, and 
you know. Um, or you- some, sometimes I'll just. I was looking at me going, what tune were we playing? And <laughs> 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 because they just like, we've gone so far away from what the original tune was, they don't even remember. They're looking at me blankly going, so I just go, on the one, drop out. They go, boom. And then I just start the, start the original <laughs> tune again. And they go, oh, yeah, all right, <laughs> boom. And, and back in. So, But, you know, it's, it's been lovely. After 19 years now of these guys, it's, um, there's so much trust built up. And, and, and they, they allow me to, to uh, um, they, you know, to lead it. And, and they kind of trusted me to not drop the ball and, and to keep it going and, and you know sometimes we'll come off stage and they'll say oh great DJing tonight you know and that's that's our take on jamming really I'd love a 20th anniversary new master sound celebration at Spirit of Swanee Park yeah that's next guys, year you guys curate the festival I think that would be the way to do it as well as bringing you back here for one of our WTNS lives music philanthropy and podcasting and philanthropy we could bring either uh, your charity that you're working with or Positive Legacy mm-hmm. as we're ending this interview can you tell us a little about your charity that you're uh, that you're working on now the payback yes the payback um, I was living in the Tenderloin in San Francisco very close to the Great American um, and you like to live near music venues huh yeah why not? I mean, you know, it's a cheap Uber ride. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was literally living, living half a block from there. And I don't know. It's like I've always felt um, very lucky that I had supportive parents um, and, um, and actually, a, you know, socialist society in Britain where, you know, if, if you're not working, you get some benefits. Or, you know, like your kids, it's harder for, for kids to th- fall through the net. And, and here there's no safety net. And. And I you know, saw so much homelessness in, in San Francisco. Oh, in yeah, in Tenderloin. And, and, and I was also kind of, I didn't like the fact that, the, you know, friends and music fans would be like, like oh, I love the great America. Bro. I hate all those homeless people. And I was like, like, like these homeless people are doing it on purpose to right. be mean to you. Right. You know, it's like, uh, you do realize it's not their fault that they're homeless, Sorry, right? Sorry, they're inconveniencing <laughs> you. Yeah. So, so I was kind of like, I wanted to start doing something for the community because I actually really loved that community and, and um, I, I felt part of the community. I felt very safe in that community. I feel like, you know, the, the, the regular homeless people that I saw, everyone's looking out for each other. And, and, and I, I felt for one of the first times in America that a real sense of community there. And so I kind of wanted to um, raise some money for, for, the, for that community and then also try and have some kind of um, not educational, but just try and change the stigma on, on homelessness and, 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 and make uh, it not a political thing, but a humanitarian thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like this could happen to any of us, you know, like a couple of things could go wrong in your life and you could find yourself homeless. Oh, I know. It, it's kind of happening. Yeah, it's <laughs> happening to Seth. It kind of happened. Uh, not yeah. kidding. Yeah, you know. I was living out of his office for a while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Me, it's happened to me, you know. It's like, and, uh, so, uh, but I've always had, you know, I've, got, I've always had friends around me or like family around me who've kind of like, you know, saved my ass. So um, that was kind of the starting point of it. I also thought, well, hey, you might, want, you might be able to talk shit about some, you know, uh, some crackheads, but can you really talk shit about kids who were 
forced into homeless homelessness you know and yeah. and, and then, so I, I work with uh, homeless youth in Denver I was like between 16 and 21 years old there's two and a half thousand identified homeless kids and, of and, those, and this in oh school and sleeping yeah, in but, parks but the thing like, is that it's not just it, I think there's a misconception of homelessness where people think it's just what you just said that it's yeah. sleeping on the streets homelessness isn't sleeping, sleeping on the streets there's kids that go to school every isn't day just, isn't mm-hmm. just it isn't just right there's home, kids that, that don't go to school I mean excuse me they go to school every day but are yeah. sleeping in cars Sleeping yeah. in hotel rooms yeah. and the hotel yeah. rooms are you or, or know. friends, you know, friends' yeah, floors fa- and things like exactly. that. You know, so it's, yeah. it's a big, it's a big, it's a big deal. Oh, totally, totally. And and actually, the the urban people I work with, um, they say um, kids experiencing homelessness because rather than saying, "Oh, you're a homeless person," so it's a stigma uh-huh. on them. It's like they they are a kid actually, and they're. Ex- Experiencing homelessness. I like that. It gets actually doesn't. It doesn't mean that you know that, that it's, it's not a stigma. It's like hey, you're experiencing yeah, yeah. this, and, you and it's not a permanent it. state. It's not yeah. a permanent state. Exactly. It's not something to be identified by. You know. Now, how so, are you raising money for for the, this organization? Uh, so doing shows. You know. Um, so we started off doing uh, the, the payback, which I did at the Great American, the first one with the Master Sounds, and uh, we got a bunch of sponsors involved, and um, and we you know we raised. 20, 20 something thousand dollars that first year and uh, we worked with Positive Legacy they kind of partnered and then the payback became its own uh, 501c3 about a year later um, and then we've uh, so we did a, a couple in San Francisco then we did one in Denver <clears throat> and then um, I just had so much going on I, you know I, I felt a little burnt out for, for a while from it um, and uh so then I decided, rather than putting six months of energy in for one big show, I was like, well, how about every show I do, you know, you take a couple of bucks from the ticketing fees, yeah. which are kind of arbitrary anyway, you know. And actually, a lot, it turns out a lot of, you know, you know I think the Marley family, every show they do, they take it. And um, I, um, Michael Ferranti does the same. So when I actually approached venues and said that, it's like, oh, yeah, the Marleys do that. I was like... Oh, that's a thing. Grateful Dead with the Rex cool. Foundation. Right, right, right. So I started doing so, and not even bothering to advertise it, you know, really, because it's like, it's not, it doesn't, it's, it's you not going to it's not going to, oh, I'm going to go to that show because $2 is like, <laughs> but like, saying, but oh, $2 good. of the arbitrary ticketing fee that I, you know, that I'm paying happened to go to the, the homeless youth of Denver, like, uh-huh. you know, whatever, you know, and we would still put the logo on it and things, but. You know that because um, unfortunately, when sometimes when you do a, a benefit show, the, the idea that it's the a benefit be- show. the idea that's a benefit show puts people off coming. I would say that there was a third less people coming to our shows if we call it if make it a benefit show, yeah. even if it's the same band. Oh, but so, but well, the, the, thing the is, money that goes into these. I mean, I, as an auctioneer, I look at some of these um, galas and stuff, and it's like. You know, sometimes they're spending a hundred thousand, sixty to a hundred thousand dollars just on the night itself. And sure, there's ticket money that comes to it, but mm-hmm. you know, you could cut half that cost and do the same thing. Right. And if you're going to spend that, and I really like uh, the consignment type things too. It's like, you know, consignment's great if you really need it, but all in all, there's so many people that are willing to give that 
you want 100% of the proceeds go. Right. And, and it's, same, it's, a, it's a hard line. Sure. The same band thing, I think sometimes there's a perception that there'll be shortened sets in people's minds. Oh, that's true, too. So if you ever want to get around that, you, I would say make it clear that, oh, they're doing a full set or make it clear, you know, yeah. unusual one-time-only collaboration, stuff like that. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely never skimped on, on, the, on the music side when I've done any of these events. But, sure, um, but I'm talking about the perception. Sure, and, and that thing is there is a lot of perception. And, and a lot of people just go, well, I don't know where the money's going. Is it all going to this? You know, it's like, well, it's, not, it's well, not all going. It's right. like, it's like, you know, what, what, what's the problem here? But that's, that's <laughs> right, though. That's, that's yeah. an issue people have going to this. So when you do add benefit onto it, it does create all, it brings up all of that. Yeah. All of that. And everyone's got their own thing. Since we're near yeah. the end, can we do the rapid fire thing? Uh, up to you. A couple eh? of rapid fire questions. Sure. 2007, <laughs> Blue Nile, New Orleans. What are your memories? That's your first New Orleans gig. <laughs> Donald Harrison was there. Who else was there? And what Donald are your memories Harrison, there? Donald, Donald Harrison walked up to me on set break and he said, Welcome home, brother. I mean, <laughs> wow. That's what I remember. Yeah. And then I remember playing way too late and then going straight from there to uh, breaking into a, a graveyard and doing a, a photo shoot with Michael Weintraub. Uh, hey, we know Michael. <laughs> well, why was Donald here? Did he tell you why he was there? How, he, uh, how did uh, he know about uh, you? Uh, Alex from Alex, uh, or Alex from the old days, Xander, now, now known as Alexander, from the Boom Boom Room, invited him. He was the promoter of that show. My favorite live reggae album ever is not Babylon by Bus. It is Jimmy Cliff live, Greatest Hits Live. The guitar player on that is Ernest Wranglin. Ernest Wranglin. You were playing a gig with him once, and he changed the way you view your approach to guitar. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, <clears throat> it was actually the, uh, the night after I moved into my spot in the Tenderloin. Oh. And it was, it was his 80th birthday at the Great American Music Hall. And um, vinyl were his backing band. Oh yeah, and they and they invited me, and they said, "Hey, we, you know, it's Ernest 80th. You should come and play a tune." So I came over, and uh, you know, met him. He's you know, lovely guy. All that, and I get up on stage, and um, it's 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 a it's a pretty funny story actually. I get up on stage, and um, the, the guitar player is on stage right, and Ernest is all the way over stage left. So I get on. I'm like. I didn't get on stage to play with Ernest and be the opposite end of the stage. So I kind of like pull my cable, you know. I walk over to him. I'm like, all right, let's play. And he's like, this cheeky little. <laughs> so like he gives, me a, he gives me 16 bars solo and then cuts me and gives it to the sax player. And, now, and then he passes it around the stage. And then he rips this solo for like, you know, 10 minutes in front of me. <laughs> And then we finished the song, and I was like, well, that, you're the closest I was like, that showed that that showed me, uh, and uh, he's like, this is my show, motherfucker. Like so, <laughs> um, but standing next to him, seeing the way he played, <clears throat> it was like he wasn't thinking about the notes. He was just making sounds, you know. And that, that's what it was just so fluid, but it was just so uh, uh, thoughtless. As and I know it sounds a strange word, but you know. Uh, he, he, it was, it was all just soul and feeling coming out, and sometimes he was just going up and down the strings and just making a sound. He wasn't going oh F G F sharp, you know, like vomiting, like yeah, the Colonel would yeah, say. It was just just making sounds, you know. And, and I was like, wow, well, funny that, isn't it? Music's about just making sounds, you know. And finally, this: How much do you listen to your live shows when you're on the road? What you've Ooh. just done, and <laughs> well, first answer that. No, never. You don't. <laughs> so, I mean, do you ever go back? And listen I should. To- I should. I know it's a, a good discipline because then 
it's, you know, you improve by listening to yourself, but well, it's you so uncomfortable to listen to yourself. Brad hasn't given him his own, uh, his access to his own music yet. Well, you also, in this improv, could find riffs and stuff to frame future material around, too, mm. right? Has, you've never sure. done that? Uh, n- no. Wow. I mean, we, we, I think all, is, all, all of us guys, we, you know, we, we like studio recordings, and we've never loved the live shows, listening to the live shows. But you don't think that something you've done in the moment live could turn into something you could use in a studio. I'm sure, program. it could. If yeah, if you know, it's like the whole thing. It's like no one likes to hear their voice backwards. Are they? Oh God, is that what I sound like? On you know, you but know, you, you have get, some, you have your own sound in your head, what you uh, sound like, and then you hear it back, and you're like, oh yeah. I you sound have some terrible. pretty hardcore fans, right? Yeah, yeah, they, and they love it. They follow you around and then keep an ear on all the recordings. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of our recordings kept for sure. How about asking them? <laughs> hey, is there any? Yeah, I just like I, I don't love listening to them. I mean, if, like I said, it's actually a really good discipline to do it, and I've done it in the past. But in terms of, is it enjoyable? Not really. <laughs> no, but I'm saying to your fan, to say to your fans, hey, by the way, you could even have a contest. Right. Hey, go through our improvisation, send right. us something that we've not used in a song, and we'll frame yeah, a song around. That's pretty it. cool. That's, I like. I like it. And you, you can enter album. that at insideoutwtns.com. <laughs> Go ahead and uh, email us at insideoutwtns at gmail.com and let us know your favorite moment. Actually, give us the MP3, put it on find, SoundCloud, and find you'll your favorite win. wrong note. And you, you'll win. <laughs> no such thing. A reserved bottle of Eddie's brand new wine from the winery. Uh, absolutely. And tell him the Indian food he'll be eating, Seth. Bojanic. We'll be will be eating Bojanic tonight. Absolutely. Here tonight. And about. In right about in about minutes. right now. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. And for your work. It's always a delight to so I got to be honest with you. Sometimes no, 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 don't be honest. Sometimes funk bands can get boring after a while. Mm-hmm. You guys have a way of keeping it interesting. From the very first time I saw you, I, I see a lot of music and and there's something about the way you guys play that keeps me and so many others engaged. DJing. It's the DJ. Yeah, I think so. I like that. <laughs> it really <laughs> must be. That that whole thing brought a Oh, one last thing on the meters. So how awesome was it, this band, that you initially got into music, then two of them invite you to be on a gig? That's got to be the It's pretty mind-blowing. It's pretty mind-blowing. And and that I can call them both friends is is insane. Would they let you choose some of the material? Like some of the obscure old... Oh, no, they asked us to choose the material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, we want to do, like, stuff that we... You know, we're so bored of doing the same songs all the time. What what, what do you like that we did? And we dug out some stuff that they they didn't even remember doing.
man, that was very kind of us to, to give him his time. Again, we were in the same spot. We had conducted the interview with Adam Deitch. And up there we were with Eddie Roberts um, between soundcheck and show and between their, their meal from Bojanic. Bojanic. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, delicious stuff. All right, Seth, update us. Come well, on. Well, before you update up- you, you, you forgot to mention that Eddie's mom, we got to meet Eddie's mom that night. Uh, she was- oh, and, and I was da- dancing with his wife. I didn't realize until later, but she's a, one, a very cool woman. Standing right there in the front row the whole time while he's playing. What a, what a wonderful woman, as we learned in the interview. Oh, can I just throw out the, uh, the uh, websites again? MatadorSoulSounds.com, NewMasterSounds.com, if you want any more information, including tour dates. Well, thank you for that, Rob. So, yeah, I just of I course. just got I just got back from Jacksonville, Florida. I was there for uh, about a little over a week. Um, the first couple days, the first three days, I took what was called the Benefit Auctioneer BAS BAS course, so Benefit Auctioneer Specialist. And there's only I think five other people that are BAS uh, recognized in the state of Georgia. And there's only a handful, well, more than a handful, but this it's. It's a continuing education for auctioneers. So if you don't know, you all probably just think auctioneers go out of fast talk and that's it. But you actually have to get a license, and every state has a different license. So here in the state of Georgia, I went and it took 80 hours last year, and I, and I got my license. And, and this year I went to this uh, the National Association's conference and show. And this is where you have benefit auctioneers, you have cattle auctioneers, you have um, – Real estate, uh, you name it. Every what do you mean? Type. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? Catalog engineer? No, uh, no, cat- <laughs> cattle auctioneers. Oh, cattle auctioneers. Yeah. So you have a little bit of everything. Now, this class though is three days. So there's different classes you could take, and I chose to get my BAS. Uh, so I was in a class with 18 other people. One from uh, London, one from Mexico. Uh, so it's international, you know, uh, and. The auctioneers that were there were great. They're all different. Some people that really just focus on being benefit, doing benefits, whereas other people uh, do real estate and other stuff and just want to add to their, um, you know, to their to their knowledge. And so, well, that's great. Yeah, so learned a ton. Of, uh, it's taught by some of the best, uh, Lance Walker and uh, Scott. Both these guys are some of the best auction uh, benefit auctioneers out there, and we really dove into it. But what was neat, what I didn't expect. A couple takeaways on the course itself. I didn't expect that I would create such a friendship and a bond with the other folks in the class. And right. and, and, if, and there's a there's a there's a real some special comes out of that, and, and we'll see throughout the years because we're all in this together. Now, here's here's the other takeaway. I'm in the music industry. Let me tell you, folks. I'm in the music industry. Nobody shares their playbook. Nobody shares their playbook with this class. That is true. And this, a lot of times you ask someone just for a stupid phone number, someone who you. You've just given something to them, some kind of number, and they'll be like, why? What do you need for? Why, 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 why? Yes, I see what you're saying, but not in the auctioneer world. Is that what you're getting to? Yeah, Rob. I'll give you an example. Someone's like, uh, we're talking, oh, that's a really good idea. I should. Uh, do you have that in your contract? Yeah, I have that in my contract. Oh, um, do you mind sharing that piece with me? And then they give you the whole contract. You're like, whoa, 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 I just meant that piece. I think you, you mistakenly gave me your whole contract. Oh, no, no, take the contract. Look at it. Take whatever you want from it. It's like, are you kidding me? Or another example is, um, you know, I'm sitting around you know, late night at, at the bar just chatting it up with different people. And someone will say, oh, yeah, we're talking about different ways we open up. And someone says, oh, I open up this way. And, you know, this does this. And it's like, all right, that works? And you're giving me what works for you? I mean, some of these auctioneers yeah. are, are people that are in my same market here in Atlanta, and they're sharing what works for them. And they're like, That's very hey, cool. if it works for me, it works for you, and it works for the industry. Hey, hey, is any part of the training um, 
voice care, like taking care of your voice over the course of time? Yeah, well, that's so uh, after the BAS course, uh, I stayed for the conference and show where there's tons of different classes you could take. Uh, one of them was uh, included a piece of that, how to take care of your voice, uh, how to uh, one was how to be a you know, better ringman. And uh, one was how to support, uh, how to work with your clients and, uh, you know, better educate your clients and all, all sorts of different things like that. So, yeah, it was and the teachers were right, amazing. What- and one last thing, and you can save the rest for your auctioneering podcast, which is debuting soon. But one last thing, can you talk about how this is applicable to music festivals, how, how you used it at the Sweetwater Fest, and how other festivals could use your auctioneering skills? Well, yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, as your auctioneer, now I have a lot of other auctioneer friends out there in Col- Colorado, California, Massachusetts, New England, you know, the whole thing. And, and my point is this. When it comes down to what I'm able to do as an auctioneer is I can come now to a music festival, and I can work with them artists to get you some more marketing and tie those artists into the charities that they're, they want to support. And I could put together an auction that also has some on-site activations going on and create wait, a wait, really wait, wait. unique don't, experience. Don't, don't, you're glossing over a key part of that. Yeah, go ahead. You're doing it for charities that the artists chooses and supports. So yes. keep in mind that when the festival's over and Seth has raised this money and it gets back to the artists that what what you did with through this festival raised this amount of money for this thing that you care about and that is a huge that can be a huge thing in that triangle of love go back to our first few episodes and listen to about the triangle of love well let's wrap this up Seth okay oh. are you going to wrap thank you everybody for listening thank you Eddie for spending time with us next week we have Nick from Big Something I just heard Big Something going on Sledgehammer with the turquoise horns from some festival. It was excellent. Also, Mike from Voodoo Visionary. Voodoo Visionary is touring Colorado right now, but this is too late. But check it out, VoodooVisionary.com. Voodoo Visionary is coming to a venue near you in Colorado or in the southeast, probably. I think they're playing in the north soon, too. And, Rob, are we still going to go out and do fish next week in uh, Atlanta? I will be at all three. I'm hoping to. That's My trip is all geared around getting home the night before... The first fish show. And are we going to bring out this little uh, recording device and go ahead and re-interview some folks in the lot? I would love to. If you'd like to do your research, listen to the Tom Marshall um, episode on rail riders. Beneath the scales. Find the scales. Under the scales, not beneath the scales. That's so beneath the scales. Hey, speaking of beneath the scales, under the scales, any of these sorts of stuff, check out OsirisPod.com. There's a lot of amazing podcasts in there. I spent some time, Rob, on my travels this time, and I um, I listened to a couple of our more uh, shows from a couple of the different podcasts out there, and, and there's some really great stuff, so please check it out. Um, I have to tell you, I've listened to a ton of them. There's so many great ones, but Beyond the Pond is right up there with my favorite things I listen to now, beyond any of this stuff. That is such an excellent podcast if you are into a variety of music and also they have a very carefree natural delivery to them it is absolutely fantastic beyond the bond if you haven't checked it out yet um they take fish jams sometimes and 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 extrapolate how they relate to other artists even with regard to guitar tone or with regard to effects or whatever it's so well done it's so insightful and informative uh, beyond the pond and thank you for listening thank you josh thane Josh Thane Productions oh my for gosh, engineering. Josh Thane. Productions.com. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Harris Sullivan. Sully, Sully, Sully Sullivan. And thank you, Rob Turner.